welcome to our discussion here today on conservative budgeting and what it means for states. Uh, we've got a great group of panelists today um, that'll be discussing what they're doing in their states on the budget uh, and what you might be wanting to do in your state as well. As we have a lot of good topics, a lot, you know, the legislative sessions are going to be starting just in a couple of months, well, less than a couple of months in many states. And so it's a good time to be thinking about what are the next steps in the budget, in the state budget there. There's been a lot of talk about all this federal funds that are coming down with ARPA. Now we have a whole nother round <laughs> with the Jobs Act, the quote unquote infrastructure package. And maybe there's more money that's going to be coming down soon, too. So I think it would be good to think a little bit about what's going on with that money and where we might be heading forward on, on that. But the, the first thing I like to, to do is to give a quick overview about what we've been doing in Texas, uh, basically since 2015. Back in 2013, during our legislative session, we started working on a lot of budget amendments. Like, how can we actually reduce the size of the budget? And so there was about 20 budget amendments that were put forward during the House proceedings, right, when they were talking about the budget on the floor. And anywhere that they cut, well, we have a pay-go system. So if you cut here, a put-and-go system, or basically if you pull, pull and put is what it's called, sorry. Uh, and so you pull from one area, you've got to put it somewhere else. You can't actually shrink the size of the budget. So it made it very difficult to slow down the growth rate of the budget over time. And so we started coming up with a, you know, a new idea of what we ended up calling the Conservative Texas Budget, which was put in place in 2015. We announced it, did it early. So the governor knew, the lieutenant governor knew, the legislature knew, and really found that it was a good approach of kind of moving forward with what we were doing here. And if you look at, and we've done that each session now, we're four sessions in to using the conservative budget approach, and the average growth rate has now been below population growth and inflation. And that's really what the conservative Texas budget included, was the entire budget, so all funds. It was the growth rate of population of the state, population growth of the state citizens, and inflation based on the consumer price index that's used you know, nationally, but it's a good measure of the average growth of wages over time. Because really what we're trying to do is not figure out, okay, how much should the government be growing by from an appropriator standpoint, but how what's the taxpayer's ability to pay for their government? And a good measure of that is population growth, more people, more ability to pay in that sense, and also inflation tied to wage growth. So they have more money in their pocket to pay for government spending. And then if you add the two, that allows for some economies of scale, and it's easier to sell and talk about with the public and legislators and things of that nature. Um, and so what the results were that were before 2015, the six legislative sessions before that, and we have a biennial legislature here in Texas, I should mention that. Lucci will get at me if I don't, if I don't mention that. Every two years, we, we, we do a budget here. And our annual our biennial growth rate was 12%, right? And the population growth plus inflation uh, was right around 7%. So we were five percentage points higher than population growth plus inflation. So we we're much higher than the average taxpayer's ability to pay. Well, the four legislative sessions since then, since 2015, since the conservative Texas budget was put in place, the average growth rate has been 5.2% and population growth plus inflation, right, has been 6.2%. So a full percentage point less, which gives us more opportunities to cut taxes. We've had some substantial cut taxes cut on our business franchise tax, which is a horrible gross receipt style tax. We've had property tax relief over the, the last, you know, basically eight years for biennium. And so there's been a lot of good progress that's been made. And so what we thought was, well, hey, how can we actually get this passed in legislation? That's really the ultimate goal of strengthening our state spending limit. We already have a balanced budget amendment in place, so that's good. But what about strengthening our state spending limit that was based on personal income growth, which is highly volatile? And why should the overall government grow at the same speed as people's income compared to their ability to pay based on population plus inflation? And so this helped us to have a much more dynamic a prosperous economy, I would argue, with having taxes lower than they otherwise would be. And so now the question is, could this really work in other states? Could we see what happened in Colorado's Taxpayer Bill of Rights, the TABOR there, which had a lot of benefits? They've weakened it some over time to where now here in Texas this year, we passed a new space state spending limit that covers all general revenue, Right. So general revenue and general revenue dedicated funds so it went from about 45 percent of the budget that was covered before to 55 percent here in the state. And instead of using personal income growth, we're now using population growth times inflation. It's this compound method that they wanted to use of one plus population growth times one plus inflation, which is essentially one plus population growth, like population growth plus inflation, uh, the, our preferred metric. But they also had this one last term. If you remember your old FOIL method back in the day, you probably forgot that put out of your memory. Uh, 
first outer inner last, right? And you have that last term of population growth times inflation. And, and really, without including economies of scale, you might want to include that. But I think you can drop that and just get to something simpler, a better measure of just population plus inflation. And, and so they have this population growth times inflation in Texas. And we changed the amount to bust the limit from a simple majority to a um, three-fifths majority. Not quite what we like for a two-thirds majority, but hey, we're moving in the right direction. It was better, it was good news. And I think we could argue that we now have the strongest state spending limit in the nation in, in Texas. And so this was brought about though by a number of years of getting us to this position, this, this point, right? Of, of just hard work, working with legislators, you know, getting things passed in the Senate, but then failing in the House. But finally, this session in 2021, we're able to move that new state spending limit over the hurdle and get that done. And so I think it really provides a good opportunity for other states to look at and consider. Um, and, and, and I'm glad to be able to bring on some of my good friends now and great warriors, happy warriors in this conservative movement to bring about um, state spending limits and stronger state spending limits and really rein in the growth of spending. Right. Milton Friedman, my favorite economist, said the ultimate burden of government is not by how much it taxes, but by how much it spends. So if we can really get control of spending, we can get control of the size and scope of government that's influencing our daily lives. So with that, I don't I want to talk anymore. I want to get straight to our um, panelists today, the first of which is going to be uh, Kendall Cotton, who is president and CEO of the Frontier Institute in Montana. Um, and last year they put out their conservative Montana budget, um, had some really good success. So I look forward to hearing from him. He grew up in Florence, Montana, along the banks of the Bitterroot River, graduated from Florence High School and later earned a degree in political science from Montana State University. He's a Kendall's a government relations professional with 10 plus years of experience helping to shape Montana. Montana public policy, which is a pretty new public policy, but it's just having a lot of effect and um, achievements just in a short period of time. So um, we'll have Kendall here soon. Thank you for being with us. Uh, we also have my good friend, John Hendrickson, who is a policy director of Iowans for Tax Re um, Reform Foundation. They recently changed their name from the Tax Education Foundation, but they're, it's a great organization. They just put out their second conservative Iowa budget after having success last year. Um, he's been around in this space for a number of years now. He's a prolific writer, writing a lot of good op-eds um, that I've had the opportunity to co-publish with him. And so I appreciate you being with us here today, John. Next, we have Quinn Townsend, who is the policy manager at the Alaska Policy Forum. She's worked as the economic research analyst at the Buckeye Institute. She recently completed her master's and resource economics and management at Western Western Virginia University. And so I've known Quinn now for a number of years. She's continuing to do great work. And so I look forward to hearing to her thoughts today. And thank you for being here, Quinn. And last but certainly not least, we have Ron Schultes, the Director of Policy and Research at the Beacon Center in Tennessee, who is, where we just recently released the conservative Tennessee budget. And I should say that Quinn over in Alaska, we released the responsible Alaska budget last year. And so that seemed to work better there, right, using responsible responsible term versus conservative, which maybe we can talk about that here today. But Ron has, has been at Beacon for a number of years now, has um, a great background in public policy, has done a lot of work, even served as legislative aide for the House Majority Whip of the Georgia General Assembly. And so uh, we are really, I'm really pleased for him to be here today. So thank you, Ron, for being here as well. All right. So let's let's get into it. Um, I, I want to start with you, Kendall. You were, you were kind of the guinea pig in this process, if you will, as the, the first sort of conservative budget outside of what we were doing, um, you know, here at TVPF. And, and we worked together closely on that. And so I, I wanted to get your perspective on what's been going on in Montana with their budget um, and what you found to be helpful with this sort of conservative budget idea. Sure. Thanks, Vance. It's good to be here. So so really what had been going on in Montana for either the last honestly, the last 16 years, 20 years, had been a steady increase in the uh, the rate of spending growth. Our budget over time had increased by 100, 138%, whereas the growth of population and inflation, the, the, the real you know growth of our economy only increased by around 50%. So we were really spending way, way more than taxpayers were able to afford. Several legislatures had to enact tax increases to continue to afford uh, a lot of the programs that we were running uh, to continue to fund schools and, and uh, you know, road development, all that kind of stuff. So you know, we had a unique situation in Montana where we had a bunch of candidates running for office in uh, late 2020, and it really looked uh, like it was going to be the first unified Republican government in the 
the last 16 years in Montana. So we had a really strong Republican governor candidate, Greg, Gian, uh, Greg Gianforte, a lot of statewide office holders, and then uh, a, a large expectation that we were going to have a very large Republican majority in the legislature. So the question everyone was asking was, okay, what's their legislative agenda going to be? And, you know, all the candidates and, you know, Greg Gianforte included were saying, we want to pass a conservative budget. We're going to hold the line on spending and using these really broad terms. So, you know, reporters and the media and a lot of commentators were kept asking, you know, what does that actually look like? You know, what, where is, is funding going to be cut from programs? And, you know, depending on who you ask, there's a different perspective. So the conser the more conservative leaning uh, Republican legislators were really hardcore and talking in terms of, you know, slashing billions from the budget. And then more moderate uh, legislators were, were, of course, you know, more concerned with kind of maintaining funding for programs and, uh, you know, responsibly restricting, you know, the growth of spending. So you know, what we what we aim to do with the uh, the conservative Montana budget was really, you know, dive into the, the data and outline a clear metric of what exactly does a conservative budget look like in Montana. You know, when we published our report, it really it, it it caught fire within legislative circles, and uh, it brought Republic or the conservatives and the moderates together around a, a really simple metric that um, is is a, a fact based and data driven. And at the end of our legislative session, uh, I'm very happy to say that they passed a conservative budget, one that uh, grew less than the growth of population and inflation. In fact, it only grew around uh, one to two percent a year. So really, they did a good job of restraining uh, the growth of spending compared to, you know, the last 16 years of, of budgets that we've seen. And uh, my hope is that we continue on that path. Great. Great, Kendall. And um, there's a lot of great work. I just shared your recovery agenda where you put out the conservative Montana budget um, last year. And I, I think it seemed to work really well there. Um, I'd love to give some more details um, once we go back around on uh, what, what went on there. So thank you for that. Uh, John, you, you, were, you, were, you were the next kind of guinea pig here on the conservative Iowa budget. And, you know, it was, it was good that we worked on some different things. And it was interesting, too, because there's different approaches of how you can expand on this. For example, Kendall, you used kind of this re recovery agenda, uh, kind of wrote a report that included all these things. John, I, th I think for you, at least on the first one, we did just an op-ed and put some good information in there of how it compares over time. Um, and But there are other ways, too, an actual report or a blog post. It, it does, there's a number of ways to do this. But, John, what's been going on with the budget there in, in Iowa, and, and what did you find helpful with this approach? Well, first, Vance, I want to thank you. I've never been called a happy warrior before. Normally, I'm a pessimist. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, to I me, you're a happy warrior. Yeah. <laughs> I just really want to thank you, though, for leading this effort because uh, <clears throat> I think this has been really important. I've been involved in the State Policy Network not a long time, but since 2006. And I remember my first annual meeting and uh, being in a seminar led by Bob Williams on budget reform. And <clears throat> I think you're picking up where he left off and working on these important ideas. And I see Michael joining us as well, and I want to thank him as well because both of you have brought, I think, more attention to tax and budget issues, which are at the center of so much of state policy. So it's, <clears throat> I think it's really exciting, the leadership both of you have given us to in the state policy network. So I'm really grateful for that. One thing we, uh, as Vance mentioned in Iowa, we're, we're kind of in a unique situation because Iowa <clears throat> has changed politically. We've been uh, really a purple state, but over the last several election cycles, Iowa's turning more red. And so we have a Republican governor, Republican legislature, and that's been that way for some time. So uh, when Vance first approached me with this idea, I thought it was great because that had never really been done before in Iowa, to the best of my knowledge. And one thing, even, even if you have a Republican-controlled legislature, it does not necessarily mean that they're going to be conservative in spending. And so that's one that's one problem that we have here because our house tends to be more controlled by moderate republicans who want to spend more money the senate tends to be more conservative and our governor governor kim reynolds tends to be a little more conservative so what the first the first uh cons iowa conservative budget that we did is <clears throat> vance calculated that in order to keep it between uh the growth of inflation and population it would be roughly about 7.8 billion. And unfortunately, the legislature did not uh, go that low. They, our budget last year was 
a little over $8 billion, but they also did a billion-dollar tax cut, so it, it basically evened out. And uh, that tax cut was both for income and some property tax relief. One thing that we're, we're seeing here with the second one, uh, we've gotten more feedback on that, mostly because not only did we do more of a report this time, which is on our website, but uh, <clears throat> I was kind of surprised because it's been more hard, more difficult to get op-eds published in Iowa, especially from a conservative perspective. But the Des Moines Register uh, before Thanksgiving ran an op-ed, a shorter version that Vance and I did on the uh, conservative Iowa budget. And uh, I was surprised. I actually got more feedback from conservative Republicans, people, people saying because they said you can't cut the budget to seven point four billion, which is what the population and inflation calculation is. You know, so I got some pushback on that, saying that's too draconian. <laughs> but uh, one thing I think that we've used this to our advantage for is that tax reform has been a great is is a fundamental priority for Republicans, especially for Governor Reynolds. And so we've been able to use the conservative Iowa budget as a framework to build a foundation of if you really want to get our income and and uh, both the individual income and the corporate income tax rate lower, then you're going to have to address spending. And to a certain extent, um, I have to give the Governor Reynolds credit. She has done a good job of keeping spending low. Now, certainly it hasn't been uh, within uh, what we would like to see, but but overall, I mean, the, the it's been, you know, the, the, the increase in spending hasn't been too drastic. And so they've had, the legislature has done really a good job of, of controlling spending. One problem that we have in Iowa, and I'm sure maybe it's probably in most states, is that close to 80% of our budget is tied up in two programs, public education and Medicaid. And I'm sure that's everyone's seen that. So basically, 10% or less of the budget is you're fighting over because... <clears throat> and and maybe I'm too pessimistic, but I don't think anybody is going to try to cut public education. I mean, that just doesn't seem realistic. And so I think what the legislature has done is been able to at least slow the growth on spending. I I really don't like that term because I wish we could, uh, we really need to go back to, you know, I know Vance and we both share a favorite president, Calvin Coolidge, of going back to some fiscal discipline, especially at the federal level. But I think this tool has been very helpful because we can look at how how the general fund in Iowa has grown, measuring that with inflation and population. And also, we, we, we've opened up a second conversation is strengthening our, our spending limit. Right now, Iowa has a fairly weak spending limit. It's uh, at 99% of state revenue, projected state revenue. And that's only in code. So, um, we would like to see maybe something stronger, and there's been attempts in the past, uh, but they failed in the legislature. So, so I really see this as beneficial, one, to our tax reform discussions, and also to trying to get a stronger spending limit. It's also setting a benchmark down, and, and the grassroots really respond to this as well, because right now, Iowans are in businesses, small businesses, families, they're all budgeting. They're making tough decisions, especially as inflation is hitting people. So, you know, why can't legislators do the same? So I just want to thank yep. you again, Vance, for all your help. It's great to have you back in the network. And uh, I just appreciate all you're doing. Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks, John. And those are excellent points um, that I'm glad you hit on. You know, one thing that came to mind as you were talking is, you know, this idea is really a maximum threshold. Here, here's the number. That's one thing that I think brings about with the conservative budget approach is it's something that's tangible, where we as fiscal conservatives have talked a lot about for a number of years, reining in the growth of government. Well, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> right. We didn't really have something that's tangible to put out there to say, OK, here's what it, here's what that means. And that's what was brought forward by the conservative budget approach. It says, OK, here's population growth plus inflation. Let's increase what was appropriated last time by that amount. And let's put that number out there. Uh, and that is the conservative budget. Now, if you go above it, 
that's not a conservative budget. We'd love for it to be below, as this is really a maximum threshold, which is another one of your good points there, John, of, of this is a maximum, not something that's a target or something like that. We really would like to, for it to be less or even cutting government spending. Uh, but this at least gets us a, a path to better matching the taxpayer's ability to pay for spending over time and not crowding out the productive private sector. So um, it's a great points, great things that you're working on there. Um, Quinn, I'd like to turn it over to you now of looking at the effects of you know what this has done in, in, in Alaska, but really like where y'all were before this and um, some of the work that you've been doing there. So, so Quinn? Yeah, thank you, Vance, for having me talk today and for all of your help with this project. A short history of the budget in Alaska. Um, I think, you know, like Montana and Iowa, the Alaska budget has been growing for many years. Um, we looked at the past, the past two decades, um, and especially because of the oil boom um, between 2013 and 2015, particularly in Alaska, um, state spending skyrocketed um, because that's where almost all of Alaska's revenue comes from, excluding federal funds is is from oil revenues. Uh, so between 2001 and 2015, state bonds appropriations grew by almost 10%, uh, but population plus inflation growth was only 3.2%. So it was quite a bit higher. Um, the past four or five years, the budget has has been cut a, um, a little bit, mostly in the capital budget because just pushing off maintenance projects is easier than cutting the size of government. And that's what, in my opinion. <laughs> um, so that's the history of the budget. And then and we are um, working with Vance on this project in Alaska. We are, we are calling it the responsible Alaska budget, um, just because the language of conservative, we use that word, everyone would just write us off. <laughs> like, okay, well, they're just saying the same thing as always, whatever. Um, so responsible is just language that more policymakers and even the public can um, can get behind more than the word conservative. Especially in Alaska, you know, every state says, well, we are so unique. Um, <laughs> so Alaska politically is unique because in, in the House and in the Senate, you know, majority People in the majority might actually be part of minority caucus or people might be, there's a few individuals who aren't in a caucus at all. And so being red and blue just doesn't really matter in Alaska currently because everybody's kind of, policymakers are kind of all over the place. So this past year was the first year that we released the Responsible Alaska budget. Um, and just because of the timing of the project, we released the first numbers and started talking about it when once the conference committee released like the first the first budget before the governor um, signed or vetoed anything. So that was the first time that policymakers and their staff had seen us talking about that and using those numbers. So I don't it, I don't think that the numbers themselves were all that effective last year because we kind of sprung it on policymakers at the end after they'd done all the work. We're like, well, you didn't follow this this benchmark that we didn't tell you about. So I'm really looking forward to this next session um, because we're releasing um, right at the beginning of the year as policymakers are getting ready to go back to Juno and work on next fiscal year's budget. Um, and so they'll have that standard and they, they know that it's coming because we released it last year. Um, so that was the main feedback that I received from like staffers was, well, you like sprung this number on us and where did it come from? So one, one goal I have with the Responsible Alaska budget using these numbers is we are really trying to push a spending cap in, in Alaska. We have one and it's meaningless. And so that's something we've been working really hard on. And this responsible Alaska budget, this number is a really useful tool in showing what a spending cap could look like, one example. So that's been helpful for me as I've been talking with policymakers about spending cap to refer back to the responsible Alaska budget. Uh, the other thing that I've found, I think, John, I think you touched on a little bit is it just makes our having this hard number, these this hard data, makes our the rest of our work more impactful. I think sometimes in the past, Alaska Policy Forum has kind of been brushed off as uh, they're the group that just always says cut the budget, cut the budget, cut the budget, and that's it. 
And, and so this gives us something much more concrete in saying, we need to rein in the budget. Here's how much it should be reined in by, and here's why. Because, because the budget is growing much faster than population inflation. And that's something that's hard data that people can, can understand and, and get behind. So that's, that's our responsible Alaska budget. And I'm awesome. really looking forward to this next special session. I think it will be much more impactful with yeah. our timing well well that's great and thank you for everything you're doing there and keep up the good work um i know uh lucci's got michael lucci's got a run but just to plug uh lucci real quick is that you know one of the other key things about having these spending limits in place and using conservative budget approach is that any sort of surplus funds that you get we should be returning back to the taxpayer right um, through through uh, property tax relief and things of that nature. Lucci, I don't know if you might just want to say something before you go. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing to do is is get the spending restraint in. And then, like, Texas has that now. you got to show it a couple times. Yeah, we can do this. Once you show that you can do this, then you attach tax trigger to it. So figure out what tax you want to go after in your state and just dedicate the excess um, revenue to lowering that rate, buying down that rate. I have model language on that that I could share, you know, if and when we get to that point. Um, but I, I think that the most important thing really fiscally you could do is, 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 is some version of this conservative budget model, because then you create the revenue you need for tax reform and you restrict the spending, which is the most important thing. Good. And so I think that's a, a, a good point to now uh, move over to Ron of what's going on in, in Tennessee. One of the things that was interesting, Ron, whenever we were looking at the numbers is, I mean, Tennessee has done a pretty good job. Um, compare with some of the other states of restraining spending. And if you look at a lot of the tax burdens that are out there, it's pretty low. Um, it's, but but we could always be improving, right, and finding other avenues to do that. Um, and so I, I wonder, you know, what's been kind of your approach so far? I mean, we just released this not too long ago. And if you've, you know, where y'all were in the budget, kind of history there. And then um, what you've seen so far is maybe the cost and benefits of this approach. Yeah, well, thanks, Vance, for having me. Uh, I'm, you know, the newest skinny pig, I guess you could say, maybe not the innovator, but still an early adopter of this approach. We became interested in this, uh, the conservative budget idea for a couple of reasons. The first is, is similar to Quinn, we do have a spending cap here in Tennessee, but it's rather ineffectual. It's called the Copeland cap, and it's a constitutional provision we have here that basically says state revenue can't grow faster than the state's economy, which they then define by statute as personal income growth. Without it, And if they want to, all they have to do is take a simple majority vote. So they've done it about essentially 50% of the time. It really doesn't have a lot of teeth. And a lot of grassroots activists have been clamoring for Beacon to get involved in reforming this measure and, and, and putting some real teeth behind it. The problem is, is that changing the Constitution here in Tennessee is extremely onerous. You have to first, in one General Assembly, two-year General Assembly, pass a measure by a simple majority. Then you have to come back in the next two-year General Assembly after an election and pass it by a supermajority. And then it goes to the ballot in the next uh, time the governor is up in a, in a midterm year. So, for example, if we were to start the process of trying to change that now, it wouldn't be until at best 2026 that we could actually change the spending cap. So it, it's a huge lift and a very complicated issue dealing with, you know, economic growth of state funds. And then they can supersede on a simple majority. And then on the same token, though, we often get we're very blessed here in Tennessee to have um, our speakers of both the House and the Senate are pretty fiscally minded and, and really good about not spending too much. But they always are coming to us asking for our help in kind of quelling rumblings of from rank and file members about, hey, we've got these record surpluses. Let's do something with it. Right. And so we get this ask for help from our leadership when our spending cap isn't very effectual, but we knew it would be a huge effort to try and, and, and uh, usage of time and capital to try and change it. And so what we saw from this approach was really a way to, from a comms perspective, to, to call for a new way, a new type of spending cap without necessarily committing to a six-year, five-year process of changing the spending cap we have on the books. And then what it, what our leadership really liked about it was is it gave them a tool 
to kind of push back against some of the calls for more spending uh, amongst the the membership. And so they could that now they can say to them, hey, if we go above this amount, Beacon is going to call us out on that. So we really like that approach and that we can put this number out there. We can raise attention to to spending in the state. And then kind of our hope is, is that in several years, kind of like what's happened with y'all in Texas and you know, we basically have this little brother complex comparing ourselves to Texas, you know, uh, here, you know, no state income tax, all that kind of stuff. Our hope is, is that several years down the road, it will create enough buy-in and understanding and, and acceptance of this approach to actually start the process of changing our existing spending cap. The last thing I'll highlight, too, is, is I'm sure this is a, a big issue for a lot of people here on this call or who will be listening is, you know, especially in 2020, when uncertainty around revenues from the pandemic year, oftentimes we'll get asked for specific requests on where the, where the budget should be cut. And that's a very difficult thing for organizations like ours to do because of, obviously you're usually a smaller team than, than a state budget office who, you know, maybe have dozens, if not, you know, up to 50, 100 analysts, right, that help them make the budget you don't under, maybe know knowledge of how all the funds work. And so it allowed us to then pivot from trying to come up with specific recommendations to just say, this is the number, how you deem best to achieve it, you know, that's on you. But it, it really sets the guiding light for spending restraint and spending reform. And then it doesn't put the burden on your team as well to try and figure out, okay, if we're going to call for spending cuts, what should be cut and, you know, and being, um, thoughtful and accurate in what can and cannot, you know, all the different, where is it, state funds, federal funds, all that kind of stuff. So we saw a lot of benefits to taking on this issue and um, have gotten some pretty good feedback from leadership as well, as well as the administration. We're excited to continue to do it in, in upcoming years. Uh, that's great, Ron. I'm, I'm glad to hear that y'all have already been talking with legislators and others about this approach. Um, and I hope to see it successful uh, this upcoming legislature. And, you know, I think we've really covered a lot of territory. So thank you all for those comments. And those are key points too about the areas to cut. And, you know, all these different areas have their own lobbyists, interest group, groups, rent seekers, you know, all these things that we could throw out there where they don't want those areas cut. I think John said earlier, it's almost impossible to cut education, even though we know here that education spending isn't tied to improvements or we should have the best education system in the world, right? Healthcare isn't tied necessarily directly to education spending, or we should again have the best healthcare in the world. And those just aren't, those aren't the realities that we live in. And so what this allows you to do with this, having this top line number saying this is the maximum is it allows for there to be policy priorities put in place within that such that you don't go above that. So if, if healthcare needs to grow by eight, ten percent, right? Um, because now, basically, we've all, in some sense, expanded Medicaid, even though we all haven't. But with the CARES Act, and as long as this emergency declaration is in place, all states have to continue to hold people on Medicaid, um, whether they can't income out and they can't age out. And so that's put more and more of a burden on these states, even if they haven't technically expanded. Um, and so, what I will tell legislative members you know, on, on uh, appropriations or on Senate House appropriations or Senate finance is like, look, if that's going up by 10 percent, then that means other areas of the budget, let's say population growth plus inflation here was 5 percent. That means other areas of the budget have to either grow by less than 10 percent or they've got to be cut such that the overall budget doesn't, you know, doesn't grow by more than that 5 percent. And that allows for policy priorities to really come into play and say, OK, is this really constitutional? Um, you know, zero-based budgeting, speaking to Bob Williams earlier, John, I mean, that was something that he always talks about, and I, and I do too. I mean, it's really important to get to zero-based budgeting, program-based budgeting, and that's what you're helping to put in place because you're putting that budget limit like we all have on our monthly budget, but puts it on government, which they don't have money. It all comes from us. And so some people say, well, the government should, should budget like a family. And I'm like, no, they need to budget even better even more conservatively, because it's not their money. <laughs> it's coming out of our pockets. And, you know, I see Eric Randolph on. Uh, he's over at the Georgia Center for Opportunity. Um, we're working with this Alliance for Opportunity now that's really looking at, you know, improving workforce development, uh, reducing barriers to entrepreneurship, and reforming safety nets to try to get people back to work. 
right? And so we understand that we're not just going to eliminate the safety nets that are out there today, if, if ever. And so how can we do things more effectively and efficiently within government? And I think this is one of those approaches that, that allows us to do that and to make sure that the most money is staying in the productive private sector. That's where we're going to get job creation that's long lasting, where you get work that gets on the job training and skill set that's going to last a lifetime. Because, you know, these transfer payments and, and safety nets, that's just a, a redistribution of income that only is going to last as long as that program is in place. And at the same time, the opportunity cost is you're taking it from the private sector, right? And so you're reducing the ability for that to be as productive in the process. And so we've got just another mechanism here um, to work on. And so the, the, the other thing that I wanted to get your thoughts on is what has your state's been doing with some of the federal funds? You know, we had about $42 billion the state had in total um, with ARPA. And, you know, one thing that we did here in Texas, and this may not be for every state, just like some states have chosen to just do general revenue or just state funds versus the all funds budget for the conservative budget approach. Or, or, or you know, and, and, but the other thing is, is do you want to exclude some things? Like here in Texas, I exclude any sort of tax relief because what we're really trying to measure is the growth of government which is government spending. So if you're providing tax relief, that's not going to grow government. So why would we include that in the appropriation side? And the other thing was on the federal funds, I excluded that as well. I've got some heat for that a little bit, but my my position on this was, and I'd love to hear your, your, your thoughts, is that those federal funds should be one-time expenditures. So if I'm if I included in this 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 session's appropriations, I'm artificially increasing the base such that the new base is going to be up here to jump off of, giving them a lot more room to budget or appropriate next session, which I don't want to do, right? Because if that's what clearly one time, then it should go away next time. And now we're back on the trend path that we were before based on population and inflation. Um, and, and they were even, you know, so doing that helped them to stay underneath the conservative Texas budget this time, but it'll also help to keep check on them next time because if those appropriations from the federal funds weren't one time, they'll show up again and then they'll bust the budget that time. So I'd love to hear um, your thoughts on this. You know, maybe um, who would like to start first? We can go in the same order, I guess. Uh, Kendall, if you want to go first. Sure. You know, so in our conservative Montana budget, we we only focused on state funds. So uh, we we excluded federal funds. And, you know, one of the reasons was it just it just gets so messy when, you know, you're looking at federal transfers and all the all the different federal monies that go into the state. And then especially in light of, you know, the coronavirus and all the stimulus spending and ARPA and everything like that in Montana, at least for us, it was a you know, it was a, it was a foregone conclusion that the state was going to spend that money and uh, however they saw it best. And so, you know, we, we chose to focus on uh, state funding because that was where kind of the political will was to limit and restrain the growth of spending. You know, I I. I I totally buy into your view, though, Vance. I, I think that, you know, really it's all tax dollars we're talking about here, you know, whether it's federal funds or state funds. Um, and I think, you know, one of the important things that was brought up by some of the other panelists is that this really empowers organizations like ours, this, this conservative budget model really empowers organizations like ours and even citizens to be able to, to take a really zoomed out view of government spending and fight back. Because you don't have to go get in the weeds with, you know, the budget committee and you don't have to go get in the weeds with, you know, whatever interest group is lobbying to not cut certain spending here or there. You can say, I don't care where we cut it. We need to focus on restraining the overall growth of spending. And so something I've told, you know, grassroots folks as I've been presenting our, our budget model uh, across Montana is, you know, you can use this as a tool to fight back against the growth of government in a way where you actually have the high ground. Yeah, exactly. That, that's a great point. I think uh, Kendall brought up some good points. We didn't bring in the federal funds in Iowa's uh, conservative budget either, although Ron reminded me of something of a conversation that we had with a legislator who's no longer in there, but he said one of the key problems that they had with cutting programs is that there's so many programs in Iowa that are tied to existing federal dollars that it's hard to to cut them. And I was looking at our auditor's report of the comprehensive uh, uh, financial report that came out a week or so ago, maybe a couple weeks ago. And last year, Iowa received $9 billion from the uh, federal government, and our budget was $8 billion. So basically, we get a little bit more. And then if you just take pandemic dollars, uh, it's over $9 billion that Iowa has received. And, and so one thing that we're seeing is I, I think we need and it's been very hard is trying to get 
some type of federal funds inventory or at least a discussion going on how can we, in a sense, weed ourselves off from the federal funds. One thing that scares me is child care is such a big issue in Iowa, and both Republicans and Democrats are saying that we've got to do something about child care. And I've talked to conservative people who are sympathetic to the Build Back Better bill or the human infrastructure bill, whatever you want to call it, because of the child care provision. And so in a sense, this is socialism that's bribing people, saying that, you know, this it's a false promise that we're going to subsidize this. And, and so that, that, that concerns me. The other thing that I, I want to mention is that we've had a debate going on in Iowa over who's responsible for our surplus. And so right now we have a large surplus, uh, a little over a billion dollars, $1.24 billion. <clears throat> We've actually been debating some some of the Democrats in, in our legislature, as well as some of our, our uh, more liberal uh, counterparts in the policy organizations here in the state, but uh, <clears throat> they're all crediting you know Biden. It's, it's the Biden agenda that has caused the surplus. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, certainly the uh, the stim individual stimulus, the PPP, all that uh, had some impact on on keeping our revenues going. But to a certain extent, it was the conservative budgeting, the legislature and Governor Reynolds that even before the pandemic hit, we were in surplus and our state economy was doing very well. Our unemployment was low. And, and so we were really prepared for that black swan event that was COVID-19. And so I think things could have been a lot worse in Iowa if we didn't practice these sound budgeting principles. And so there is some controversy over how the governor has been using some of the ARPA funds. There's uh, sort of an investigation going on. Did she use some funds inappropriately for salaries? There's one that I didn't really care for. It was uh, $3 or $4 million that they used for a, a tourism ad for Iowa. And a lot of people said, what's the big deal? It's only $4 million. But, you know, it comes back to the larger point of, you know, we're facing some serious problems as a nation. You know, the national debt is escalating. And I don't know, this is where I get doom and gloom, because when is it going to collapse? And, and <clears throat> a lot of the, when I go out to speak to Rotary Clubs, a lot of the topics they want me to speak on is federalism. And when you start talking about, you know, our budget, uh, one is, for example, they don't know, people in Iowa don't know that over half the state budget is for education. They think it's only maybe 10%. And they also don't know how much federal money is coming into the state. And they don't realize that if the federal government all of a sudden has to do some, you know, take the meat cleaver out and just cut the budget. And where is Iowa going to make up that money? There's going to be some painful cuts if that happens. So, I mean, I... I think these fiscal rules are, are both at the federal level and at the state level are are very essential because I I don't know this is where I'm not a happy warrior because I just see I Vance I have to tell you I just ordered a book by Joseph Johnston called The Decline of the United States. Uh oh oh. <laughs> One of the points of decline is our our escalating national debt and this this yeah. just basically largesse of government that's growing out of control that, you know, it's, you know, how much, how much more pressure can that take? So, well, I, I share your concern there of hopefully with the, the states, we can continue to prove these proof of concepts and then take it to the federal level. As I've recently published the responsible American budget, I know that's a much higher hurdle, uh, but if we don't start now, when, right? If not us, who? And so we've got to start somewhere. Uh, so thanks for that, John. Uh, Quinn, what, 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 any thoughts on what's been going on here in, in Alaska? Um, mostly, I mean, my comments just echo Kendall and John's. Um, we also did not include federal funds in the responsible Alaska budget, A, because of all of the federal money from last year, but also so much of Alaska's spending is, is federal funds. Um, I, I don't know the exact number, but it's quite a bit larger than most other states. Um, and there's just not the political will to say no to money, which is unfortunate. And I guess that's another um, hope that I have with with this responsible Alaska budget is using it as a a way to transition into a conversation about some a lot of state spending is because of because we have to match and because of the strings attached to to federal funds and so maybe Alaska should be thinking about 
how much federal money they are accepting because it increases the state the state's responsibilities as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's a great point. Ron, what about you with the federal funds and other issues that you've been seeing there? Yeah, so we actually decided to go a little bit different approach and did include federal funds in our conservative tenancy budget for a couple of reasons. One is just simplicity, right? I, is, is messaging around that. I, as I pointed to earlier, we already have this not effective cap on state spending growth. And so what we wanted to point out was is make the concept of, of fiscal restraint simpler and clearer for everyone to understand, uh, including the general public and not have to get into, you know, John, as you pointed out, like a lot of people don't know how many, how much of our state spending is essentially uh, federal dollars, you know, coming. Um, and the other thing that we wanted to point out too is money is fungible, you know, by and large, right? And so, and so, what we wanted to do was point out that if you're not considering these federal dollars, it does allow them to, you know, maybe take on other issues with state dollars that they wouldn't otherwise do so. So we wanted to make it simple, make it clear, and then also, this is can be an opportunity. This isn't something that we potentially focused on. But in some individual conversations, too, is in particularly a red state like Tennessee is bringing up the concept of, hey, lawmakers, policymakers, do you want to be so dependent upon the Biden administration for your budgeting? Right. Is that something that you really want to be dependent upon is Biden essentially funding 40 percent of Tennessee's budget? And if you talk about pushing back against Washington, well, it's really hard to do so when you're not um, financially independent, right? When you're financially dependent upon Washington, it's really hard to do so. So for a couple of more just simple and messaging reasons, we decided to keep federal funds in ours um, and felt like that was the approach based upon what Tennessee already has on the books. Uh, we did talk about not including the um, the the coronavirus packages because we felt like that was a little bit more unique. It's kind of a one-time special funds, but the ongoing federal funds that the state traditionally gets, we decided to include that in ours. Yeah, yeah, and so it, it's great because there are kind of different views on why to include what, what not to include, and things of that nature. I think that's kind of one of the beauties of this approach is there's some there's flexibility, there's um, priorities that can be set on different areas. Um, so not only are we allowing for priorities set by the legislature, we're giving them flexibility of in that growth rate, that maximum number, but it also gives us some flexibility on what we want to focus on and where you want to prioritize those efforts. And it helps with your own efforts. If you want to talk about school choice and, and what the benefits of that even to the budget might be, you can. If you want to talk about healthcare reforms and what those benefits could be or safety net reforms, you can. And it gives you a lot of other avenues to go through. And what you know, other policy um, experts from different areas of the budget will come by and say, hey, how would this influence the, the CTB? Right. Um, and, and so that, that so I, what I've liked is that's kept that on their mind as they're going through all these different policy areas, which I'm not you know, an expert in all those areas. I'm the chief economist here and try to work on those as much as I can with others. But but they're much more expert in those in those specific areas. And it's just been really good um, to see that happening. One other thing um, and, and, and maybe just a, a minute for each person as we close out here is um, we're also starting to work on the uh, local conservative budgets. My good friend and colleague here, James Quintero is on on, on today and Rod Borlaw as well, good good friend. And you know, we've been working on some conservative budgets like the maybe the responsible Austin budget as they, you know, that's whew, that's something else here that we have going on with a lot of spending. You have these blueberries in a sea of red, right? Uh, if you think about it politically, and we've really got to get them under control because when people think about Texas tax burden, it's always property taxes. Well, who, who does that? That's the local governments. And, and we've really got to do something there um, because even though, you know, as you said, Ron, earlier, Tennessee's the little, little brother or little sister, however you want to put it, um, y'all are doing really well when it comes to tax burdens, uh, where we are, we have the sixth most burdensome property tax burden. Y'all have, I think, the 36th, according to the Tax Foundation, and Florida is 26th. So it's not because we don't have a personal income tax. 
Y'all don't either. It's just because we spend too dang much at the local level. And so we've got to do something about that as well. Um, so here, just our last couple of minutes. Thank you all so much for being on this um, call today. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Vance, you know, I, I'm with you guys on uh, the local budgets. Really, I, I think for a, a state like Montana or a state like Texas that has, you know, a high, high rate of property taxation and a lot of uh, grassroots folks who are struggling under that property tax burden, uh, we have to turn our attention to the local level. The Montana, you know, the state government doesn't spend property tax dollars, local governments do. And so uh, we really have to focus on those areas. We put out a uh, conservative Missoula budget, Missoula, Montana, and uh, it was a hit. Um, the, it, it really colored the uh, the debates uh, over uh, Missoula's budgeting for uh, this fiscal year. So um, I, I encourage everybody to take this model and, and apply it in other areas, you know, maybe even schools. Yep. Great point, Kendall. Uh, John? I, I like that idea of uh, trying to look at some local government budget reforms because uh, just as Kendall said, property taxes are a huge issue in Iowa and it's it's a local uh, city county issue, school board issue. And so I think it'd be interesting to look at maybe some of the bigger cities in Iowa, Des Moines, Cedar Rapids, Iowa City. To uh, And right now we're pushing for, um, I see Gannon's on, we're pushing for a, uh, um, a Kansas-style, Utah-style truth and taxation law. So that's one of our objectives uh, this session. Yep. But Vance, I just want to thank you again because this Thanks. is uh, this is just great. So appreciate awesome. your help. Thank you. And thanks, Gannon, too, for all the stuff you are doing in Kansas. That's really, really good. And, and you all have a, conserv or a responsible Kansas budget coming out soon that we'll be, we'll be talking about. So that's going to be exciting. Uh, Quinn. Yeah, we don't currently do any work at the local level, um, but over 40% of Alaska's population lives in once in Anchorage. Um, so that might be interesting down the road. Um, I really like the idea of applying it to, um, to school boards or school districts. That, uh, that's a really interesting idea. We do a lot of work on district transparency in their money, and that would be an interesting tool to, to add. Um, to our tool belt. No, thank you for having me on, um, yeah. and thanks for all your help with this with this project. It's been it's been good. My pleasure, Quinn. Keep the good work, Ron. Well, once again, thanks, and uh, I'll be quick. I like the idea of the local level. Uh, Lord knows Nashville needs it as an example, and I think we can point out how if our cities don't budget better, it can um, mitigate or undermine the success at the state level too. So that's something to think about. Um, and then the last thing I'll just point out is, is this gives you a lot of things to argue for. We've been talking about fully investing in our rainy day fund. Um, we don't have the property tax issue as bad because we also have a truth in taxation, but our corporate tax rate is rather high. And there's been talk about always looking at that for years. And we see this as a vehicle for talking about corporate tax over the upcoming years. So uh, really excited. This is, you know, a really flexible idea. And, and just uh, thanks for working with us on advance. My pleasure, Ron. And uh, thank you, each one of the panelists, for being here today. Bye.